So if you tell us there's nothing we can do, we go away believing it. Like I thought it was the end. Now, if only my consultant had said, yes, the diagnosis is that of young onset dementia and not something anyone would wish to have. But think of it as the start of a different life. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, Series 3, I'll be exploring sleep, the science of emotions and fast fashion. And I'll be asking my guests questions like, is baby brain a real thing? Is everything we've been told about skincare wrong? And why aren't we talking more about dementia? This is a podcast that asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. There are 50 million people living with dementia worldwide. By 2050, it's likely to rise to 152 million. But how much do you know about dementia? And when it's a disease so rapidly on the rise, why aren't we talking about it more? Wendy Mitchell is a former NHS worker who was diagnosed with young onset dementia at the age of 58. She's written two books, Somebody I Used to Know and What I Wish People Knew About Dementia. We talk about why dementia is so much more than memory loss, how the arts often falls back on stereotypes when featuring characters with dementia, and how Wendy thinks a diagnosis of dementia could be better broken by doctors. It's not the end of life, she says, it's the beginning of a different one. Wendy is the most incredible advocate for education around dementia, even when it saps her of precious resources. She's full of ways in which life for people living with dementia can be made easier, happier and longer. From coloured bowls to make mealtimes easier, sunflower lanyards to non-verbally communicate a hidden disability, and a kinder way to approach patients and loved ones when they are hallucinating. Wendy, thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right. I've been so looking forward to speaking to you about what I wish people knew about dementia. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. There are almost 50 million people living with dementia worldwide, one million in the UK. And with an ageing population, that is likely to rise to 152 million by 2050. That is a huge statistic. And Yet there's so much as a society that we don't know about dementia and a lot that we fear. What do you think is crucial that people learn about dementia? And what do you think we often get wrong about it? People assume that dementia is just about memory. Mm. And if you only look at the, the memory issues that loved ones have, people have, then you're missing out on so much more that you can help them with. Because often, I always say that it's probably 50-50 of people with dementia that are intuitive and can understand what's happening to them, and 50% don't have that intuition. And for me, 
I can analyze what dementia is doing to me, but other people, they need those around them to be their eyes and observe them and help them with issues that they have. I always say you have to live in our world because we can't live in yours. And for loved ones, that can be very difficult sometimes, especially if, for example, your loved one is hallucinating, as I do. You have to live in that moment and see what they're seeing, even though it isn't there in your eyes. Because for their eyes, it's very real. And it can be either frightening or it can be reassuring. But the way the loved one reacts can help that process. If you've got someone next to you saying, no, no, don't be stupid, there's nothing out there. When you can see a figure dancing, then it's not going to make sense to you. You can physically see it. And if the loved one simply said, oh, yes, shall we have a dance now as well? Then how much more calming would that be than saying, no, no, there's nothing there. Don't be stupid. Another of the things that I think a lot of us think about dementia is it's something that old people get. But you were 58 when you were diagnosed. I was. And many of my friends, I mean, I was guilty of that in the beginning as well. When I was diagnosed, I thought it must be the end because no one else told me any different. But since meeting so many other wonderful people with dementia, Many of them are in their 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond. Goodness, 30s, as young so as that. it's not age-related whatsoever. There are cases of children being diagnosed with dementia. Now, obviously, that's very rare, but there are children. Really? So you're just more likely to get dementia the older you get, but it doesn't mean you're, you're exempt from dementia's cruelty if you're younger. And another thing you pointed out that was so important, I thought, is that there's this misconception that dementia is a mental illness rather than a neurological condition. Oh, yes. We're often under the mental health services. Mm. Why on earth are we when it's a neurological condition? Yes, many of us get depressed and have a mental illness as a consequence mm -hmm. of being diagnosed with dementia. But dementia itself is not a mental illness. It's a complex brain disease. I think a large part of why dementia has been flattened as a disease and why your book is such a necessary tool comes from the one note way it's portrayed on TV. It's pretty much always a woman in a care home near a window brushing her hair on her own. You, yeah. You've consulted on TV shows like Casualty and you found that you still didn't see the disease represented as you thought it should be in the arts. Can you tell me about that experience and why you think it's still so misrepresented? Well, TV and films, they have to sensationalise. They have to get viewers watching. And if they showed the often mundane reality of living with dementia, it wouldn't grasp the viewer. So they have to be dramatic, they believe. They have to be sensationalised. 
When I was consulted on casualty, to begin with, I was listened to. I felt listened to. The scripts that were coming through were represented what I was talking about. But as time went on, I realized that they'd stopped listening to me. I actually dropped out of the process. I said, I can't be a consultant if you're not good enough to listen to me. And so they went on for a little while longer. And then a new writer came in who decided they wanted to listen to me. And we started the process again. But once more, that that restriction on TV meant that they, again, wanted to sensationalize it and wanted to dramatize it in a way that often isn't real and condense everything down. That's the other thing that TV and films do. They condense mm. it down into a watchable chunk. And that, that isn't the reality of dementia. That it just becomes easier for storytelling purposes to rely on a, on a template than, it, than embrace the nuances. The way that you were told about your diagnosis of young onset dementia at 58 was, I'm quoting you here, with a handshake, a sad look and nothing they can do, no hope or reflection on what might happen. You weren't given any information about preparing for the eventualities of the disease. What do you think doctors should be doing better when it comes to breaking news to someone that they have dementia and to prepare them for the path ahead? Well, I always say that the effective language, body language, facial expression should never be underestimated mm. by any healthcare professional because the way you look, the way you speak to us can make or break us because we assume you're the expert. Mm. So if you tell us there's nothing we can do, we go away believing it. Like I thought it was the end. Now, if only my consultant had said, yes, the diagnosis is that of young onset dementia and not something anyone would wish to have. But think of it as the start of a different life, a life of adapting. And no, there's nothing I can do. But remember, there's still so much you can still do, albeit differently and with support. How differently I would have left that consulting room that day with hope instead of despair and something so simple as changing the language they used. You mentioned earlier, it's not just about memory loss. Dementia changes your relationship with your senses, your emotions, your communications. It can be hard to tell the difference between something that's shiny and something that's wet. What are the subtle differences that you really struggle with, Wendy? Well, that is one of mine. A shiny black floor just looks like a big hole filled with water to me. Black for me is a very bad colour. And for some other people with dementia, it's a very bad colour. Not everybody, but some. Because, for example, a TV screen, when it's turned off, looks like a hole. So they found out that the latest thing is the the flat screen TVs now mounted on walls in care homes, they look like holes in the wall when they're switched off and they found people are trying to go through the hole to see what's in it. The simple solution is simply to cover it with a coloured cloth to break up the black. So it's not that 
you have to get rid of the TVs. You just adapt it. You yeah. just colour it with a my B&B that I go to every month in Keswick. She puts a red pillowcase over my bedroom TV every time, just so I'm not freaked out by the black. You wrote about mealtimes in the book and why you find them difficult the conversations that crisscross the table the loud clang of metallic cutlery and white food on white plates on white tablecloths which you struggle to sort of define the white on white on white and I mean another thing so many things in your book I didn't know that 50% of people with dementia also experience I'm sure I'm pronouncing this wrong dysphagia dysphagia which is difficulty swallowing that's right yes my relationship with food is I don't feel hunger anymore. I don't feel thirsty either. So I have to have strategies in place to eat and drink. But often in the later stages, not eating can sometimes be seen as dysphagia when it isn't. It's because people don't feel hunger. They're not mm. going to eat something in front of them. But other people, they do have swallowing difficulty. So it's important to get to know the person. And speech and language therapists, which are very hard for someone with dementia to get referred to, but they can help with swallowing difficulties. There are so many allied health professionals that can help us, but we have such a struggle to get referred to any of them because it's not seen as the norm. And you say a lot of the time when people with dementia eat less, the kind of response can be just force them to eat and that can cause stress and anxiety. What solutions do you find more helpful to encourage you to eat when you just aren't, you have no appetite? As I say, I don't feel hunger. So my way of convincing myself to eat is to say I can't walk if I don't eat. And I love walking. So you bribe yourself. I bribe myself, <laughs> yeah. But the same can be said for other people. If someone is sat there with food in front of them, not touched, is it because it's on the wrong colour plate? Because colour and contrast mm. are so important mm -hmm. for people with dementia. As you say, we can't see mashed potato on a white mm -hmm. plate white fish on a white plate there's nothing on it so why would we start eating it put it on a different color plate and we can see it but also is it in a plate instead of a bowl because I can't eat off a plate anymore because everything shovels itself off the end mm -hmm. of the plate I just have a bowl and I can't use a knife and fork because the complexity of using a knife and fork has gone so I just use a spoon and fork to shovel things on. So is it because they haven't got the right cutlery? I always say the easiest way to find out if a, an area, a table, something as simple as a table is dementia appropriate, is to take a black and white photograph. And if the differences in the black, white and greys are very marked, you've got it right. If they all merge into one, You've got it very, very wrong. It's the same for anywhere, for furniture and floors. I, I don't see my kitchen cupboards and my wardrobes because they're almost the same colour as the walls. So they all blend in and look 
like a wall to me. And when I first moved into the house, my daughters would say to me, why are you wearing the same clothes every day? And I said, well, I don't think we've unpacked everything because I can't find my clothes. I'm having to wash them every night. And it was because I couldn't see the wardrobes to open them and see all my clothes hanging in there. So my simple solution, because in my mind, there's always a way. My simple solution was just to take a photograph of the contents of every cupboard and stick it on the door. And it's not the order of the photograph. I don't have to keep <laughs> everything in that order because that would never happen. But it's the actual photograph that attracts my attention to say, look in here, there's clothes. Look in here, there's cups. So simple solutions. Mm. None of these are expensive. Something we hear a lot is that diet and sleep can reduce your chances of dementia. Is this rooted in science or is it codswallop? Yeah. Well, I had a brilliant diet before I got dementia and I was super fit, used to sleep well. So that's codswallop then. <laughs> so, you know, it, it will fit the people they want it to fit. Yeah. But for other people, it doesn't. Of course. So all you can do as a, as a person is just look after yourself and just hope that dementia doesn't grab you. There's a really stark report in 2019 by Cambridge University that reveals how big an impact social interaction has on people with dementia. And you mentioned at the beginning when you said that lovely line about how if someone's having a hallucination that they're dancing or someone's dancing, dance with them. And mm. the novelist Nikki Gerrard fought for something called acute units in the NHS. She thinks her father declined really quickly with dementia because he didn't see any family for five weeks. And you argue in your book really eloquently for non-verbal communication. And I found that so powerful, this idea. I think you said the thought that someone would stop talking to me just because I mm. don't talk back is very sad indeed. What are the forms of communication that we don't think about that could be utilised communicating with people with dementia rather than just leaving them alone in a bed? Yeah, there are so many ways to communicate. Just a touch of a hand, that human contact can bring that warmth of someone close to you. And I'm always saying to people, never forget the power of a smiley face because a smiley face makes you smile. If someone smiles at you in the street and says hello, you smile back and feel good. Well, people with dementia are no different. That human face-to-face -face contact and that it's back to body language again and facial expression because we, we will never, ever remember the conversation that we've had with people. Like, I won't remember this <laughs> as soon as I switch off, but I'll remember how you made me feel. I'll remember that emotion that I felt just by seeing you on screen because you have a smiley face. And it's also visual. You know, the... Find out about the history of the person. Mm. Were they a gardener? Were they, what did they do for a living? There's a wonderful story, I think it's in my book, I'm not sure, but of a, a lady in the care home who 
all day long would be tap tap tapping yes on the yes it is in your table. book yeah I enjoyed that ah, look good yeah she would tap 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 and the the care home staff were getting really fed up of it and it was upsetting the residents they said and they actually called her relatives in Australia because that's where they lived to come back and to put her in another home because they couldn't tolerate her anymore as soon as the family heard all the story they told them well of course she's tapping she used to be a Morse code reader in Bletchley Park in the war. And she'd regressed back to being that Morse code reader in the, in the war. And that was her job and no one was going to stop her. Once the care home found out, then they could express their, their communication to her by showing her pictures of Bletchley Park, of where she worked. Oh. And that engaged her then into looking at the pictures, looking at the books, and she forgot to tap. So it was, it was just finding out about that person, why she must be doing that, that changed the way care staff saw her. But if only they'd done that earlier, they could have saved so much angst and so much distress from the, for the woman that was being told to stop. This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Stripe and Stare, a game-changing underwear brand that makes knickers so comfortable you forget you are wearing them. Because nothing great was ever achieved in uncomfortable pants. Stripe and Stare knickers are sustainably sourced from beechwood trees, use 95% less water in their production, and make knickers that are softer than cotton. I am a long-term fan of Stripe and Stare, not least because the material lies perfectly flat against the skin, meaning no VPL, which used to be the absolute bane of my life. Stripe and Stare knickers come in sizes 6 to 22 and are available to buy at Selfridges, Shopbop and Revolve, or if you shop direct at stripeandstare.com, you can get 20% off for the next month using the code RIGHT20. That's R-I-G-H-T 20. So go on, buy yourself some undercrackers and think of this podcast every time you wear them. Huge thanks to Stripe and Stare. You talk about how dementia can access your stored memories and her stored memory was Bletchley Park. And sometimes you mm. say it's a positive thing, so it could be your father, but often it's an unpleasant stored memory. So there's one that you have often, which is that something's burning. Yeah. Which must be really terrifying. How do you deal with hallucinations? How have you found your way through with them? Oh, well, at first they were simply frightening because I didn't understand mm. what was happening. I didn't understand that it was the dementia. I would smell fire and then go searching the house, looking outside, trying to find the fire. But then I spoke to other people with dementia. And they suddenly told me, oh, yeah, that happens to me all the time. I can sometimes smell rotting wood and rotting leaves and when there's nothing around me. And so I realised it was being caused by the dementia. And it's always a bit dodgy with fire, but I always look at things with a 30-minute rule that if I can still smell it in 30 minutes, I know I need to do something. And if I can't, I know it's dementia. 
But you can see the problem of why the people, because I live alone, there's no one next to me to say there's nothing burning. But also if you do live with someone and they can smell burning, remember they can smell burning. And so there's, there's no point in saying, don't be stupid. I don't smell anything. Simply, you know, say, oh, go around and check the house. Oh, it's all right. I put it out now. You know, th those sort of things instead of contradicting us, because contradicting us just makes us more confused. You've written about your decision to live alone. A lot of people with dementia move in with family or into a care home or have visiting care, but that's something you've resolutely resisted despite being close to your daughters. You say you're able to deal better with your dementia, you believe, by living alone. Why do you think that is? Well, the day I was diagnosed, my daughter, my oldest daughter, was actually moving out of the house because she'd qualified as a nurse. And she said to me, shall I stay? I'm happy to stay. And I just said to her, no, no, it's all right. We've got the boxes packed. You go. Because I knew that I just sensed that I needed routine and stability. So living on my own means there's no one else to move things around in the house. Because if you move things around, for me, they no longer exist. Right. And it also means that I have to find a way to overcome a challenge that dementia throws at me. Otherwise, I can't live alone. So I have to make the effort of finding a way. There's no one next to me saying, don't worry, I'll do that for you. Because people, for the kindest, kindest of reasons, start to take over mm. before we've lost the ability to do something. In the beginning, my daughters used to help me put on my coat for some reason. And I could still put on my own coat at that time. But when I was alone, I started to realize that I was getting in a muddle, putting on my own coat. And so I said to them, if you continue to put on my coat, soon I'll forget how to put it on myself. Right. And every single time I want to go out, you're going to have to come to my house. And they stopped immediately. <laughs> so it's for the kindest of reasons people do things for us. But just help us to find a new way or give us the time for us to do it ourselves because dementia strips away so much mm -hmm. of your dignity. Those little things that we still can do ourselves become even more precious. So, for example, I love walking, but I can't tie shoelaces anymore. I get in the right pickle. So my daughter's found me no tie shoelaces and threaded them in my walking boots so I can still be like everybody else but I can slip on my walking shoes I don't need anybody to fasten my laces or have that embarrassing moment when they come undone when you're out and having to ask somebody to fasten them they just slip on shoes now but it gives me back that dignity of being able to wear the shoes I want Dementia is a sliding scale and you're at a time with the disease where you can live on your own. Mm. Are there things that you hold in your head where you say, right, when I feel like I can't do that, that will be the time where I have to live with care? 
Oh, that's a, that's a really diff, difficult one. We're currently writing my third book. Congratulations. Conversations around around death, but right. in order to live. Yeah. During those conversations that we've had with so many wonderful people, I've been able to put together my advanced directive for refusing treatment because I never, ever want to be an inpatient in hospital. Okay. Because the effect that has on someone with dementia, you decline so much quicker. And that's been proven. I've always said that if I go over the edge into someone that doesn't recognize my daughters, Mm -hmm. then I'd rather not be here. But if I am, because I've gone over the edge and I don't have any control over it, then I've given my daughters the the power of attorney to choose a care home for me. But it's not my, it's not me, the Wendy now. It's not my choice for the future Wendy to live like that. You've shared that you've received criticism for not adequately reflecting real dementia, for being too verbal, for, you know, being being too able. (laughs) Um, Is that because those critics who believe you to be too well to adequately reflect the disease have an idea of dementia perhaps it's it's last stop on the journey that they are thinking of dementia at the most severe point or does it come from people who are caring for people with very severe dementia or a a dementia very different to yours and they're cross that Mm -hmm. you are altering the perception it comes from a variety of angles. I, I get loads and loads of emails from people with loved ones that are in the later stages saying, oh, I wish I'd known that. I wish I'd known that. Oh, wow. And I say to them, but there's no good wishing what you knew in the past because the past is gone. And I'm sure you did the best possible care that you could at the time but you can now help differently. But also it comes from professionals because they see this snapshot like you've seen today, the snapshot of Wendy that can speak. You know, heaven forbid that someone with dementia can speak. But I say we have this complex brain disease and I always tell people to imagine a string of fairy lights each fairy light representing a different function of the brain. Different fairy lights flicker and fail for each of us. Dementia affecting our ability to do something one day and then the next way we can do it. But when the light goes all together, that's when that one function has gone. So that's why I can speak and others can't. That's why they feel hunger, but I don't. That's why I can type, but they can't. You see, so it's every different fairy lights fail, flicker and fail for all of us. That's why you can't lump us all into one big group. Some professionals, particularly on social media, have a pot of any of us that are able to speak and we speak loudly because that's the only way we can get things 
changed. And that's because they're set in that old domain of dementia, immediately meaning the end stages. Mm. And they forget that there's a beginning and a middle and so much life to be had in between. And young dementia is a relatively new diagnosis. It's not been around many years, and most of us are still alive. So our brains haven't been used to find out what's happened to our brains. So it'll only be when a whole group of us pop our clogs that scientists can look at those with young dementia to see how their brain looks compared to any others. It also feels deeply unfair that you would be criticised because it's such an incredible utility for someone with dementia to be at a point where they can share what that experience is like and put it into a book to help others. You're, you're doing a great public service. You're not really taking much from any of us. You, you're giving. And and also, I think, I think I was watching a video you did maybe with your co-author and she said the thing that Wendy never says is that it takes so much energy for her to do this you have to rest before you're going to have to rest for a day or two after this talk this is something that is not easy for you to do no dementia is exhausting no getting away from it I describe it to drivers like when you passed your test you've You automatically drive, you turn left, you turn right, you stop, you start, all without thinking. But when you're first learning, that first day you sit in the car, you have to think of how to do everything step by step. And it's exhausting having a driving lesson. And that's what it's like living with dementia. It takes you back to being that learner driver. Well, as someone that failed their driving test seven times, seven, (laughs) that's a very good um, metaphor for (laughs) for me. Bless. There's a sunflower lanyard that sufferers of dementia can wear in the UK that's prompted big debate about whether or not we risk disabled people being othered in public spaces. Can you tell me a little bit about the debate and why you choose to wear the lanyard, why you find it empowering and helpful? I will indeed. The first thing is I'm not suffering from dementia. I'm living with. It just sounds so much better than suffering from dementia. Yes, very good point. But also the lanyard gives me the confidence to travel because all the lanyard means is you might need help. It's not for people with dementia. It's for anyone with an invisible disability. So hearing, sight, any disability can wear the lanyard and it identifies to staff that you might need help. Now the advantages for me wearing that lanyard far outweigh the possibility of someone taking advantage because not to wear it would make me feel so much less confident. Every time I wear that lanyard when I'm travelling about, it becomes my voice. When I'm confused, I can't often go up to someone and say, help me, because I'm confused in my mind and I can't think what to do. But to have someone come up to me and say, 
can I help you? You're looking lost. And does that happen when you wear your lanyard? Oh, my, that happens all the time. Oh, now. Even more now because more rail companies are mm-hmm. using it. More shops are using it. It's becoming much better known now than it, when it was first introduced. It was just in the airports. Whereas now, every train company in my area know it. It gives me the confidence to go out. My daughters do track me anyway. There's that amazing story about were you where you tried some new tracking device, and needless oh, to say, it was not a success because yeah. your daughter kept texting you saying, "It says you're in the Himalayas. Are you having a nice time in Japan?" <laughs> yeah, I was in China once. That so didn't work. It was that. wonderful. <laughs> You know, I'm always very honest with these companies that ask me to try everything. I say I will produce a, yeah, I always produce a blog saying what I really think. So they they ask me on that understanding. So, you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. <laughs> but presumably you've found some tracking devices that do work so your daughters can see where you, see where you Absolutely. are. Absolutely, yes. There are so many examples around the world of ways that we can help for people living with dementia that we could adopt in the UK. And you cite some amazingly innovative and progressive examples, which it just made me really sad that we don't have some of them over here. I think one of them was in the Netherlands, who seem just strides ahead with dementia. They have dementia cafes. Is that right? Mm, Yeah. Well, we have them here as well, but they're very different here than they are abroad in Holland. You know, they're more just a cafe abroad, whereas here they're for people with dementia and you will do certain things when we're in that cafe. For some people it may be wonderful, but for me I would never go in one here. There's good and bad all over the world. The Japanese, they've got a a wonderful take on helping people remain in work which we struggle with in this country, as I know to my cost. But in, in Japan, there's a wonderful advocate, just like me in Japan, called Tomo. And he convinced his company to support him to remain at work. And now that's become the norm. So there's no reason why we can't remain at work. We still have so much to offer society but we do need adaptions you know it might be that we need to work part-time we might need less hours whatever whatever it is but I, I do have a problem with the dementia communities that have been built in certain countries so the belong villages in the Netherlands for yes example. yes and there's two here now as well well to me that's segregating it's not embracing people with dementia in a community like my own community has done it's segregating people with dementia into a dementia community and I'm on the fence with those at the moment when I I can't remember if I saw the one in Holland or I watched something but it made me feel very excluded from society As I say, I'm on the fence with those sort of things, but they're trying. At least they're trying to do something. And if they don't work, we try something else. 
Absolutely. Wendy, my last question for you is, if there's one thing that you hope people take away from your work that makes them think differently about dementia, what would that be? Oh, goodness. Can I have two things? Oh, you can have as many as you want. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first is that don't think it's the end. It's the beginning of a different journey, both for carers and for the people living with dementia. When I was diagnosed, so were my daughters. So we're on this journey together and both are equally important. But the power of talking, that's what me and my daughters have learned can help this process. Because if you don't talk and tell one another what's worrying, you'll never be able to help each other. But what I hope my, my books and my work have shown is to never give up on yourself. No matter what life throws at you, never give up on yourself because you never know what opportunities might come your way. To living in the moment, which I know you are a big, a big proponent of. Absolutely. The only one to live. Thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right, Wendy. I'm so grateful you've taken the time and the energy. Ah, thank you so much for asking. This episode of Doing It Right was hosted and exec produced by Pandora Sykes. Production is by Joel Grove. Subscribe now on any major pod platform to get the episodes as soon as they land.